0: Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor of The Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the NIST Center, and Damon Linker, who writes the Substack newsletter Eyes on the Right. Our special guest this week is Ambassador Eric Edelman former ambassador to Finland and Turkey, and former undersecretary of defense for policy. Welcome one and all. I want to um, stress that this podcast is called Beg to Differ, and we do differ sometimes. And in fact, we may differ when we come to the topic of whether or not the Justice Department should pursue criminal charges against Donald Trump. But before we get to those, we have a couple of other things to cover, which may involve thunderous agreement. So let's find out. First topic is the Ukraine war is now six months old. And I'm going to turn to you, Eric Edelman, on this. Russia now controls about 20% of Ukraine's territory. And I want to ask you, first off, who would have predicted six months ago when we first started heard the news February 24th, that Russia was indeed invading, that we would be where we are now.
1: Well, virtually no one, Mona, but first let me say thank you for having me back. It's great to be back with you and the others here. Virtually nobody would have predicted, I think, that we would be where we are today, although many people uh, would have perhaps been willing to say that Ukraine and Ukrainians would fight to prevent Russia from taking the country over. But I don't think anybody anticipated that the Russian military effort would be so plagued by problems as it has been, nor that the Ukrainians would fight as well as they have, or that there would be as much political support and virtual unanimity, according to polls, in Ukraine for President Zelensky and the effort to resist what Russia has tried to impose on the country. I think all of that would have been something that people would have had trouble foreseeing.
0: Now, you are one of the signatories of a piece, a really excellent piece that ran a few days ago in the Hill. A number of generals, former diplomats, former defense establishment people who are urging that Perhaps there has been an abundance of caution, maybe too much caution, in the way we've approached this war, and you argue that we should be trying to win it. Do you want to spell out your concerns?
1: Yes. In addition to that piece that appeared in The Hill, which had, I think, 19 or 20 signatories, I had a piece in The Bulwark with former Deputy Secretary of State Steve Began, former Assistant Secretary of State David Kramer. And former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense Dan Feda, all arguing pretty much the same thing, which is that Ukraine potentially has a chance to win this conflict, but it can only win if the United States and the NATO alliance, which it leads, continue to support Ukraine uh, as fully as possible and particularly with military support. Apparently, the administration uh, heard this because yesterday they unveiled a $3 billion. Package of assistance, uh, which comes on top of one the week before that was not quite as large, but pretty big as well. And this includes uh, some 200,000 plus rounds of artillery munitions, additional uh, Gimler's rounds for the HIMARS, the high mobility rocket system that we've supplied the Ukrainians with, uh, as well as counter battery radars, which have been something the Ukrainians have really uh, needed in order to uh, knock out. Uh, Russian artillery. But the issue here is that the war has settled into a kind of stalemate. Russia's made no appreciable gains uh, in the last two months or so. And the prospect of victory requires the Ukrainians to continue to be able to wear down the Russian military so that they can ultimately either take back territory themselves in a counteroffensive or break down the Russian military so it withdraws as it did from the vicinity of Kiev and Kharkiv a couple of months ago, and thereby thwarting Putin's uh, strategic objectives. And so where I think all of us uh, who signed that letter felt somewhat vindicated by the administration's decision to go ahead with the $3 billion package, uh, I still think they're being a little bit more cautious than they ought to be. But you know, they've done some things well, to be sure, including management of the alliance and holding the alliance together.
0: So there is pretty broad support, I think, in the United States for continuing to support Ukraine. But for those who are doubting what the stakes are for us, for the United States in the world, can you address that a little bit? I mean, why do you think this is a national security matter for us?
1: It's a national security matter for us because uh, we maintain important interests both in Europe and in East Asia. And the war that President Putin unleashed on February 24th was a premeditated, unprovoked war of aggression. Uh, And if it is allowed to stand and if Ukraine can be swallowed up, it will only encourage Xi Jinping to look at uh, the potential for military means to resolve the Taiwan question. and it will, you know make the world safe for any autocrat who wants to change boundaries by force. And so uh, in terms of global order, in terms of our interest in a stable Europe, in terms of our interest in a stable Indo-Pacific, the outcome of this war is crucially important to U.S. peace and prosperity. Uh, you can see the knock-on effects of this war in terms of food prices, the potential of food insecurity in the global South, all sorts of knock-on consequences. And one deficiency of the Biden administration, I think, is that President Biden has not really spoken to the American people to outline all of this. In the good old days, back in the Cold War and even in the post-Cold War, the President of the United States would have made an Oval Office address on national television to try and lay out uh, what's at stake here. And one thing I worry about, Mona, is the $40 billion package that Congress passed this spring, by the late fall, will have been expended. Both the economic support, budget support to the Ukrainian government and the military support that we've been talking about will have been exhausted. And although, as you say, right now, there is pretty robust support for support to Ukraine as measured in polls. There have been two polls out. This week, one from the Chicago Council on Foreign Affairs, and and one from, I think, Reuters, both which show fairly strong support, somewhat less support among Republicans than Democrats, but basically bipartisan broad support. But unless the president articulates the case, and unless it appears that there's a theory of victory, as opposed to this is just going to settle into, you know, another endless war, I, I worry that public support over time could start to unravel a little bit. And certainly that's what Vladimir Putin is counting on. He's counting on the support in the United States unraveling, and he's counting on support in Europe unraveling and transatlantic differences, putting an end to the kind of support that we've seen for Ukraine heretofore.
0: Just to underline your point about the president's need to speak on this way back, I think probably in March, I, um, wrote a column that was a proposed speech for the president to deliver on this very subject. So I completely agree. Although, you know, I think in many ways Biden has done well, very well meeting the challenge of this war. He has failed a little bit on the uh, communication side, but uh, Damon, you wanted to make a point.
2: Yeah, I, I actually had what will be a bit of a build-up to a real question for Eric Edelman. And I genuinely don't know the answer to this, so it's not like a kind of analytical gotcha that I'm trying to play. I'm going to ask a question, and I, I assume he may have an answer. This has to do with the geostrategic implications of what's going on here. Now, Eric, you mentioned the importance of supporting Ukraine because if we don't do so, that could send a signal to China that there won't be adequately negative repercussions for them if they try to take Taiwan, because Russia was allowed to get away with taking Ukraine, or at least taking a large bite out of it without paying a sufficiently high cost. And I agree with that kind of classical, realist calculation of geopolitics. But I wonder about another dimension to this, which has to do with our capacity to project power when we are sending so many weapons to Ukraine. And my question, which again is a genuine question, do we have enough supply to not necessarily kind of wage two actual wars with Russia on one front and China on the other, but simply to engage in basically what could be two proxy wars with these two powers. I've seen some reporting on this, but nothing that I very strongly trust, that that we are burning through a lot of material here and the amount of time it takes to produce Uh, and replenish these supplies of very high-tech weaponry makes me really concerned. If I'm Chairman Jing in uh, China, and I'm looking at the situation, and I'm thinking, you know, I've been assuming over the next decade, I'm going to try to get Taiwan. And I was willing to wait another, say, four to eight years. But this is an opportunity right here, where I know the United States no longer possesses this arsenal of weapons that could be given to Taiwan to help them defend against my attack, this actually is the time to do it, because the US can't conjure these weapons out of thin air. It takes months and maybe even longer to produce them in mass quantities. So are you concerned about this? Is this something to worry about? And how should
3: we respond?
1: Damon, it's a great question. You're 100% right. Uh, Munitions, uh, shortfalls are a very, very real concern. We've already provided the Ukrainians with something like a third of our javelin stocks. That's an anti-tank guided missile uh, that has been put to very good use by the Ukrainians. We've uh, run through, I think, something like a third of, or maybe more, but closer to maybe a half of our Stinger stocks, which are a shoulder-launched air defense missile. And uh, we're obviously using up uh, lots of other munitions. Uh, about four years ago, I co chaired a bipartisan commission chartered by the Congress to review the national defense strategy. And we drew attention to the concern about uh, munition stocks, which traditionally we've kept in relatively short uh, supply, in part because that's an easy part of the budget to cut whenever we've gone through these Budget Control Act budget cuts over the last decade. Uh, but also because we've made some, I think, relatively foolish assumptions that we would never fight a war for more than 30 days. So the stockpile is not deep. And there are some problems in terms of replenishment. This is a problem that the Department of Defense is all over. I mean, we drew attention in the NDS commission report to the fact that the Air Force almost ran out of certain kinds of munitions in the counter-ISIL campaign in 2015. Now we're looking at a whole different set of munitions. Luckily, not all the things we're using with Ukraine right now are things we would necessarily use in a Taiwan contingency. So there's a little bit of mitigation there. But I know that Kath Hicks, the deputy secretary of defense, and I know Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, are keenly aware of the munitions shortfalls uh, and that deputy secretary Hicks is working with defense industry to try and overcome them. Part of the problem is our defense industrial base has shrunk since the end of the Cold War and there's limited floor space. A lot of these munitions are made or components are made on the same factory shop floors. And so, you know, just to use an example, you can't say surge both javelins and stingers. The stinger line's actually closed. Production line's not hot. But a lot of the times there's competition on the floor for these same munitions. And the real limiting factor, I'm afraid, is something that people will be aware of from other elements of contemporary life, which is the lack of a trained labor force to do this. This is industrially produced weapons, but there's a kind of artisanal component to it. And we we lack the trained uh, workforce to do it. And it's a major problem that we have to be prepared to deal with in the next few years, In order to be able to continue to both defend and deter in Europe and in the Indo Pacific. So you've put your finger on a
0: huge problem. Wow, incredibly comprehensive answer. Thank you for that. So, Bill Galston, I would like to hear you on the topic of Putin's saber rattling. At the beginning of this war, there was a lot of worry as to whether he was quite sane, whether we might be risking. A nuclear confrontation between superpowers if we are to uh, be too energetic in defending Ukrainian independence. But what's your sense of it now? I mean, so the argument that Eric and his colleagues made in that piece in The Hill was that this is a tactic, that he threatens nuclear war, but he's not going to initiate it because it's in his interest only to threaten, not to try it. Uh, Nuclear deterrence still works. What do you think about that aspect of this business?
3: (laughs) I'm glad you phrased the question as what do you think rather than what do you know? Because I think the most straightforward response is that nobody knows for sure. And in this matter, as in so many others in politics and in war, we're playing the odds. We're trying to interpret the evidence as best we can. But there's always a question is he bluffing or is he serious? Or to be more precise, under what conditions would he be serious? At this point, it is my sense that Vladimir Putin believes that he can sustain the hit from the economic sanctions indefinitely. As a matter of fact, uh, most economists say that the Russian economy has done better than expected. The ruble plunged, but then recovered. The most recent estimate is that the Russian GDP will be down about 6% this year over last year, which is not good. But given the fact that the Ukraine economy has been cut almost in half, gives him a relative edge. So, the economic sanctions, even if they're ramped up a bit and even if they're enforced with no leaks, I believe he can endure. And if he can endure the economic sanctions, it's not clear to me what's going to dislodge him. My fear all along is and has been that we would end up in another frozen conflict with the freeze line shifted considerably to the West. I hope that's wrong. And I hope that Eric and his comrades can persuade the administration to do, this has been my formulation from the beginning, to do what is necessary to give the Ukrainians every chance to win. But even if we give them every chance to win, there's no guarantee that they will. So to put it as simply as possible, we don't know what would happen if Eric's dream were realized. And the Ukrainians were able to use the weapons we give them so effectively and so precisely as to interdict Russian supply lines, uh, so panic and discontent in the troops, and ultimately force a Russian withdrawal. Under those circumstances, what would Putin do? Especially if he thinks that a withdrawal from territory gained and maybe even more than that would mean the end of his regime. How far would he be willing to go under those circumstances? I am prepared to bet that he's bluffing, but I am compelled to acknowledge that I might be wrong about that.
0: Yep. Linda, um, one of the things that might be on Putin's mind is that the last time the Russians In this case, it was the Soviets, acknowledged defeat in a war and pulled out, was in Afghanistan, and the USSR ceased to exist not too long thereafter. So Putin may see this as an existential threat to him, to his power.
4: Yeah, I think uh, I agree with both you and Bill. Uh, We don't know what will happen And I'm hoping we get to the point where we'll at least have some idea uh, that that is the future. I am a little bit more worried and maybe more pessimistic than others. And I have to say this is not from any particular expertise I have in this area, but the politics of this war. while well, I agree that it would be great if President Biden could give a speech that would explain to the American people why this is not just something that we're doing out of you know goodwill and humanitarian effort, and you know supporting a nurse while ally, but in our own national interest. However, I don't think that that would be persuasive to some segment of the Republican base, and I would hope that there would be voices that might uh, be able to make a case to that base as well. Obviously, Donald Trump would not be uh, in the forefront, but I don't know, Lindsey Graham, Marco Rubio, there are others who are good on Ukraine who might. But I'm also very worried about what is going to happen as weather gets colder, and particularly in Europe, And the economic repercussions of this war begin to take a greater toll, particularly in Europe. Uh, In some ways, I think we've seen the worst because uh, gas prices, which did initially spike, have come down and are uh, much more manageable now. But who knows what's going to happen in Europe? And they are so heavily dependent on outside oil and natural gas, and obviously. Russia controls the levers on being able to heat homes in parts of Europe. So I'm worried about that. And it's been six months. I think most of us did not believe it was going to last uh, this long. It looks like it's going to last a great deal longer because I think, as everyone acknowledges, there is a kind of stalemate going on right now. The Ukrainians have been able to hold Russian gains, but they've not been able to go back and take back enough territory to have it be uh, significant in terms of uh, what Russia has already gained. So I am worried about that. And as with all wars, wars are easier in totalitarian or even authoritarian countries where the people's uh, will does not determine who runs the country, but it does determine who runs the country in democratic countries. And so I'm concerned about that. And I pray that the United States is going to be stalwart and we're going to continue to supply arms. I hope that the president and Republicans who are up to the job will continue to push the American public to support this war. But I'm also concerned about europe and our european allies because they are absolutely
0: critical to this as well we cannot do it alone thank you for that all right with that we will turn now to our next topic which is the president's decision to give student loan forgiveness damon linker i'm going to start with you the president has been pressured by some people in his own party to forgive some student loans. He didn't do as much as they were asking, but he did a lot. And he's using an emergency provision of the nine post nine eleven Heroes Act to do this. So it's kind of legally dubious and politically potentially very, very damaging, though that was not obviously their intent. What's your sense of it? I think this
2: was bad in many ways but none of them were that bad. That's kind of <laughs> my my okay. kind of odd take on this. I mean, you listed a couple of reasons why this wasn't I think a great move. One is it's not clear that it's legally justifiable use of executive power and I do think there is at least a decent chance that the courts will say it can't be done. That would resolve some of the problems, the more political problems with it, because then Biden could say, look, hey, I tried. Get angry with that judge or whoever it is who smacks it down, whether it's one judge or a panel. So there's that problem, which does concern me. I I very much am opposed to the drift toward um, executive orders and governing that way rather than through congressional acts. So that's troubling it's not about the most important thing in the world. So again, that's one reason why I'm not hugely up in arms about it, but I do sort of scratch my head and think it's not a great idea. Secondly, As you said, in political terms, people who have college debts obviously went to college and not all Americans go to college. Those who do tend over the course of their lifetimes to do quite a bit better economically than those who do not. So that means that this is a quite expensive. I mean, I forget the exact number between, I think, three and four hundred billion dollars. That's not pocket change. It's a help to people who, over the course of their lifetime, are going to do just fine. And in large part, they're going to do fine because they went to college, which is what is being paid off for them. Well, I guess I should follow through on that thought for the political side of it, that this is, in that respect, it is a regressive move. And uh, I think one of the Democratic Party's kind of coalitional challenges at the moment is that the party is becoming ever more a party of the well-off and they're sort of seeding voters to the right, to the Republican Party. And so this is one more small move that could accelerate that change, which isn't really good for the country.
0: There's a lot to say, but let's just bring in Eric Edelman here. So the Democratic Party which I am not a member of, but I am a well-wisher toward because of the state of the Republican Party, has a reputation, I'm sorry to say, of not afflicting the powerful, but comforting the powerful and afflicting the non-powerful, however that expression goes. Because look, this is giving a benefit to people who do not need it people who are going to do just fine, as Damon just said. Most of the people in this country don't attend college. Most voters have not attended college. They have their own loans that they would love to see paid off, their car loans, their credit card loans, loans they had to take out for medical procedures, etc. And yet the Democrats are giving it to college graduates and graduates of law and medical school?
1: As someone who does teach at a university, I have to say I found this sort of baffling because of all the reasons you and Damon have outlined, but also because it doesn't do anything to really address what I think is the root problem, which is the scandalous cost of college tuition in the United States. And I think what's very telling is, and I'd be interested in Bill's view of this, is the reaction of Democratic candidates for office in the swing districts, all of whom seem almost unanimously, it's not just Republicans who have been opposing what President Biden announced yesterday, it's been a lot of members of his own party who are the most at risk in the midterm elections. And I think that to me was the most telling
0: outcome of his announcement. Yep. Bill, so Catherine Cortez Masto, Tim Ryan, Michael Bennett, and others have spoken out saying they disagree with this decision by the president. You've had some experience with this issue. So uh, what's your perspective?
3: <laughs> well. I actually, when I was in the Clinton administration, helped design and work for the passage of some of the programs that are now being altered. I do not understand why the administration made people eligible for relief so far up the income spectrum. So if you're a single person making $125,000 a year or a household making $250,000 a year, you're still eligible for relief under this program. Maybe that counts as middle class in New York City, but to most of the country, it you know, it sounds distinctly upper middle class or even wealthy. Uh, I read with great interest and attention the administration's own detailed fact sheet. And they underscore the fact that nobody in the top 5% will be getting any relief from this program. Translation, if you're at the 94th percentile of income in this country, you will be getting relief from this program. And uh, I think that the president has always been dubious, both on legal grounds and also on moral grounds and also on political grounds, that this was the right thing to do. He came under intense pressure, and it wasn't just from the left, although Elizabeth Warren reportedly weighed in very strongly, but it's also from the African-American leadership because African-Americans have taken out, in many cases, large student loans They had to because they didn't have family resources. If you're the first in your family to go to college or among the first, then you're in a fundamentally different position and you don't have the same background resources to draw on. And so African-Americans are disproportionately represented in the pool of people who are now economically vulnerable, even if they completed college, and many of them didn't, and who are looking for relief and a lot more than $10,000. The president in his campaign never said that he was going beyond $10,000, but he did say that he would do that. If there's just a minute more, Mona, to dwell on one of the less reported details of the president's proposal, One of the programs that I worked on in the Clinton administration was then called Income Contingent Repayment Plans, which means that you repaid your loans as a fixed percentage of your income over time, and that after X years, which began with 25 and then was cut to 20 at some point, the remainder of your unpaid balance uh, would be forgiven. Well, the president is proposing to cut in half the amount that borrowers have to pay each month from 10% to 5% of their discretionary income. Discretionary income is a term of art and he's also raised the threshold that counts as non-discretionary income so that the first $30,000 doesn't count and in addition for many borrowers he has cut in half the number of years after which forgiveness of the balance would occur from 20 years to 10 years, this pretty much guarantees that a large swath of borrowers in the future will never repay their student loans. And so this isn't just a backward looking program. This is a very, very expensive forward looking program.
0: Right. Because it's not as if these loans just Go poof. I mean, somebody is going to pay it back and it's going to be the taxpayers, most of whom <laughs> did not go to college. Yeah. Um, so and very um, few of so, whom are making $250,000. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. So, Linda, the Republicans are going to make hay out of this just at a moment when the Republicans were kind of rocked back on their heels politically by the decline in gas prices and the reaction to the Dobbs decision and other things. Now, the Republicans have been handed a weapon. They're going to say, you know, well, people who uh, never went to college or who have already paid off their student loans are now going to have to be paying for this, or people who went to community college to save money, you know, all of those people may be very resentful. And then let me just ask you about the matter that Damon alluded to, namely moral hazard. So, this is something that too infrequently gets considered when people are trying to supposedly do good with government money, which is, are you going to be encouraging bad behavior by this action? And Linda, for as long as we've been around and we've been paying attention to politics, we've heard year in and year out, college and universities are too expensive. We have to make it more affordable to go to university. And so We've been subsidizing it and subsidizing it and subsidizing it. And the universities, which are businesses, have been saying thank you very much and pocketing the money and raising their tuition, something like between four and five times the rate of inflation. And around we go. You're absolutely right.
4: Look, this is one of the most monumentally bad ideas that this administration has come up with for all of the reasons you said and more. Look, I do think that education is important. I wouldn't be on this show right now if I hadn't had a chance to go to college. My dad had a ninth grade education. My mom finished high school. If I hadn't gone to college, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. It was an enormous boost to me. And by the way, I had to work, I had to borrow, and I had to pay back those loans. Now, college was a lot more affordable when I went to college. And you raise a very important point. When you have this great infusion of federal dollars, taxpayer dollars, into education, what you're going to see is it's not going to get cheaper. It's going to get more expensive. You can chart what has happened to the cost of education and overlay the infusion of federal dollars in, and you'll see they go in the same path. The more money we pour in, the more expensive the programs get. What it doesn't address is something very fundamental. I mean, we've talked a lot about the number of Americans who don't go to college. That is not as lamentable as we sometimes make it seem. College education, particularly liberal arts education, is not necessarily something that everybody needs or desires what we do need is to have a trained workforce, people who are competent in certain skills. And one of the places that we see those skills taught is in junior colleges, in two-year community colleges. If the administration had decided instead of spending what's estimated as high as a half a trillion dollars on this scheme of forgiving loans, and instead had invested money directly in making community colleges more affordable, maybe making it free. I mean, we have free public education through 12th grade. Maybe we need a 13th and 14th year for individuals, not necessarily making it mandatory, but making it possible for any American who wants to get trained in certain skills to be able to do so. That to me would have been far better. And the moral hazard question is an important one. I never like the idea of saying that we can simply have a fiat from above that wipes out what is essentially a contract. There is a contract between a borrower and a lender that that borrower is going to pay back the money under the terms in which he or she signed the loan. When you wipe that out, when you just say, just by fiat, well, you're not going to have to do it. You're going to not have to pay that back. It. Invites irresponsible behavior. We already have large defaults on student loans, and this, in certain ways, I think, encourages a kind of cavalier attitude about paying back what is owed. And as others, or have,
0: incurring the debt in the first in place, the first place. That's thinking, right. I'll take on more debt because they're going to bail me out. Absolutely.
4: Yeah. And and again, you know, choosing a higher cost education, perhaps at a private school as opposed to going to a public university or, again, immediately going into a four-year institution when, for a lot of students, starting out in a two-year institution is better for them. They may find that they love it and they want to pursue a four-year degree, but they at least have the opportunity to get a taste of that before they start incurring tens of thousands of dollars of debt. So it's just a monumentally bad idea. I don't know why they did it. And I think there is a real open question about whether or not the president has the authority to do this.
0: Yes, he might, in fact, be saved by the courts. Well, we will see. Okay, and with that, we will turn to our controversial topic, possibly with this crowd. I don't know to prosecute or not to prosecute Donald Trump. So. Taking a lead from Damon Linker, I was persuaded by his very cogent arguments. And I joined in and said, you know, I don't think it will be a wise thing to actually criminally prosecute Donald Trump. And I gave a lot of reasons in two columns and in a podcast that I did with Charlie, the secret podcast, which if you don't subscribe to the Bulwark, you should because then you could hear it. And I think it was really worth hearing. We were both pretty passionate, but polite. And we had a long debate about it. But anyway, I'm going to turn to you, Eric, because I think you disagree. So can you give your reasons?
1: I read with uh, great attention and great interest, both Damon's op-ed in the New York Times, as well as his further reflections in his Substack, Eyes on the Right, as well as your piece in The Bulwark. And Although I agree that we have no good options here, and I certainly agree with both of you that prosecution of a former president carries with it some enormous dangers to our democracy. I come at this from the perspective of having watched countries turn to authoritarianism elsewhere. I and mean, as a former U.S. ambassador to Turkey, I was present at the creation, as it were, of the long Slide into authoritarianism that has taken place there under uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. And I've watched this with horror in other places. And so, to me, if it were just normal sort of peculation and malfeasance, I would say, yes, we shouldn't prosecute a former president. I think, for instance, you know what happened with Watergate, uh, the pardon by President Ford, which I vehemently opposed as a young graduate student. I think, in retrospect, was exactly the right thing for the country. but I think Donald Trump is slightly different, and the reason I think he's slightly different is he was organizing an effort to overturn an election and disrupt the peaceful transfer of power upon which our democracy rests and If there is no legal consequence for that, what is to stop him from trying to do it the next time, or some other one of his Trump wannabes thinking that this is a way to either gain or stay in power. So I think for that reason, and because I agree with you that the best means to defeat Trump is to have it happen at the ballot box, I also think prosecution, if warranted, if the Justice Department decides they have the evidence, helps disqualify him in the eyes of voters. I think that's one of the great lessons of the January 6th committee and its hearings that laying out the crimes has to some degree diminished, you know, his support. And I think that's important to do uh, and important to reaffirm the rule of law in the wake of the real lawlessness that we have seen in the Trump administration. And, you know, there's been temptations in the Biden administration. We were just talking about one, which was the use of a dubious uh, legal basis to forgive student loans. So for all of those reasons, I find myself coming down on Charlie's side with the notion of the Justice Department pursuing the cases against him, both on the effort to overturn the election and the incredible mishandling of classified information, which, by the way, he turned into a felony by signing the law that made much of this a felonious action. That's right.
0: Thank you. Damon? One of the weird aspects of this debate for me is that I am emotionally a thousand percent for wanting to see Donald Trump frog marched off into prison in an orange jumpsuit, orange being his color, but not being too frivolous about it. Really, it is really, really important to vindicate the rule of law in this country, to reify the principle that No one is above the law, and actually there should be a higher standard for people in positions of authority than for an ordinary person. I believe all of that passionately, but as a prudential matter, I am worried that we are, and I know you are too, that we're sort of, as a society, on a knife's edge. And I am worried about presenting Donald Trump with an opportunity that a trial would be to. Sort of corral all of the Republicans into his corner again and make himself the center of attention and make himself the issue so that people will lose all objectivity and the rule of law will be trashed by the trial itself.
2: Exactly. You know, I'm working on a final post for the Substack to deal with this, and then I'm going to leave it behind for a while because I'm getting sick of it. I mean, I've written about like thousands and thousands of words about this by now, and I do think I've sort of said my piece. And one reason why I want to leave it behind by now uh, is that so many people I respect and look up to, including Eric here on the podcast and maybe others on the podcast, are on the other side, and Charlie Sykes is another And none of them have convinced me, but I sort of feel like I've done my best and uh, I want to kind of concede that, you know, none of us really know what the end result of any of these different paths forward is going to be. I would simply say, as my kind of last word on the topic, Eric said early on in his comments Because of Trump's behavior and trying to overturn an election, we need to show that there's some legal consequence for this to vindicate the rule of law. The kind of crux of what I've been trying to argue and what I've written on this has to do with that keyword, we. Who is the we who would be prosecuting and trying to send to jail the former Republican president of the United States? Well, If it is the rule of law we're talking about here, this should be most of the country. There's no rule about it being 100% of the country. There can always be kind of extremists and flakes and and people who are too apathetic to care either way or like Trump because he has nice hair or whatever the case. So it doesn't have to be everybody, but it has to be not just Democrats and the few former Republicans Who dislike Trump and are against him, it has to be some very large portion of the country willing to endorse the process of the Justice Department and the Attorney General doing this thing in the name of all of us, which is what the rule of law is about. And the problem in this case is that Trump has too much support of too much of the country. And I've gotten into lots of back and forth on Twitter with arguing with people about this question. Like, he only has one third of the country. Like, that's not half. Well, okay. I guess technically that's true, but yet he controls. Through his popularity within the Republican Party, he controls that party and that party fights to something close to a draw with Democrats at every level of government. And what that means is that roughly half of our political system is with him. And you cannot vindicate the rule of law if what it is in effect is a democratic administration trying to put the former Republican president in jail. And I hate that that's the fact of the matter, but this is a case where I think we're dealing with a situation where you have morality and our kind of public ethic on one side. And then you have kind of the reality of democratic politics and the need for a certain high level of consensus for certain legal proceedings. And this would be the gravest of legal proceedings to be trying to put a former president in jail. And I don't think we meet that given how divided we are as a country. That's, I guess, the best I can say at this point.
0: So Linda, Damon thinks that we've already flunked a test for a healthy polity and he's worried about damaging it even further. What What do you think?
4: Well, I wanted to make a point because I think it's a little confusing when we talk about prosecuting Donald Trump. First of all, he faces jeopardy in more than one case. I might be persuaded that the Prosecution of Donald Trump in terms of the Espionage Act or some of the other provisions of law that he has broken by his handling of classified documents, et cetera, might not be the best thing for this administration to pursue. But I think when it comes to the attempted coup, which is exactly what it was, to try to overturn the results of a US election. That I think cannot be ignored. And, you know, we keep talking about federal prosecution. Well, you know, there is this state case in the state of Georgia. And the uh, district attorney in Fulton County, I think, has both better laws on her side in terms of state law directing what may and may not be done in interfering with an election. She also has a lot of experience pursuing RICO prosecutions. Uh, She did it very successfully against the teachers union in Atlanta. And I think that she is building a case to show that there was, in fact, a conspiracy to overturn the election that Donald Trump helped lead, uh, but others were involved, John Eastman, Rudy Giuliani, and others in that state. And I think that while Damon might be right that if you have a federal prosecution that it is going to be divisive in the national Republican Party is going to rally around the former president that it is possible that if she builds a good case in Georgia, that it wouldn't have quite the same effect. And some would dismiss it saying, well, this is a you know a Democrat politician in Atlanta. But if you had an actual jury trial and he actually was convicted alongside others who were part of this coup attempt, I mean, we do have a recording of Donald Trump saying, find me you know, 11,780 votes, which is one more than he needed to overturn the results of the election in Georgia. We have such good evidence in that case, it seems, that I am very much for him being held responsible for organizing, directing a, an attempt to overturn an American election.
2: Could I just jump in to clarify that I I do not disagree with anything Linda just said. Everything that I've been arguing about this topic is about a federal case. If one of the states, including Georgia, thinks they have the goods on him, that I don't think raises the same kind of existential stakes that I've been concerned with.
0: Yeah, thanks. Bill Galston, I want to address with you the problem of striking at the king and missing. (laughs) So, you know, it just feels to me as if this trial, and I agree with Damon, I'm talking about a a federal trial, it would be such a circus, it would make every other sort of trial of the century pale by comparison, everybody would be transfixed by it, every little thing. And trials, you know, relying upon the judgment of 12 Americans for such a monumental issue, it seems to me as iffy. Things go wrong. Lawyers make mistakes. Judges make mistakes. Juries do things you don't expect. And if he is acquitted, if there are a few members of the jury, for example, who just really like Trump, and there are a lot of Americans who do, you know, and sort of engage in their own little private jury nullification, then you have an even more emboldened and empowered Trump who says, look at everything they threw at me and nothing worked. So that is another risk to this path.
3: One of Donald Trump's many sins against our constitutional order is that he has left us with no good choices. Mm -hmm. When I was an undergraduate and read Aristotle's ethics for the first time, I came early on to a passage that made a profound impact on me. When Aristotle, in the course of talking about deliberation, said, we do not deliberate about certainties. We don't deliberate about mathematics. We don't deliberate about astrophysics, right? We're trying to establish a truth. And deliberation is the wrong term to apply to that search for truth. We deliberate about matters that are inherently uncertain. And that's why there's so much disagreement among people of goodwill in politics. You know, we are trying to ponder the imponderable. <laughs> you know, we are trying to balance equities that are different qualitatively and not just quantitatively. So we can't just add up sums in two columns and figure out what's preferable. There are risks on all sides here. Three months ago, I was where you and Damon now are. I've moved in part because I think the biggest victory of all for Donald Trump would be to use his popularity to bluff the legal system or coerce the legal system into not doing what in my judgment is clearly warranted. That would send a huge signal This guy is so strong that he is above and beyond the law, and I think that would do as much to embolden his supporters as any trial possibly could. Having said that, I could be wrong. That could turn out to be a colossal misjudgment, and that's a chance that all of us have to take when we're opining about the imponderable.
0: I would just encourage our listeners to read Damon Linker at Eyes on the Right, to read Charlie Sykes, who responded to me, even to read Your Humble Servant. We've all been sort of trying to feel our way forward on this and trying to do what we hope is best for the country. There is not a single one of us who would not rejoice to see Donald Trump punished, but it's a really, really devilishly hard problem. With that, we will turn to our highlights and lowlights of the week. And I will start with you, Damon Linker.
2: Well, that's actually a nice transition because my uh, highlight of the week actually relates to this last topic that we've been discussing, this uh, issue of what to do about our Trump problem and his possible prosecution. One of my favorite Writers on issues related to these topics is Jack Goldsmith. I believe he was uh, on the podcast at least once in the past. Um, uh, He uh, writes for a number of places, but he's often at Lawfare, an excellent website. And um, a couple of weeks ago, shortly after the Mar-a-Lago search or raid, depending on how you put it, he wrote a very good piece, talking, as he often does, about kind of the federal law involved with classification of documents and so forth. And he he sort of expressed some ambivalence about whether it would be a good idea to try charging Trump with violating laws related to these things, and the liberal journalist uh, named Josh Marshall wrote a response in which he very strongly came out in favor of prosecuting Trump, saying he's broken all so many laws and now look, he's broken even more relating to these documents, to which Jack Goldsmith then wrote a response, which came out on Wednesday, August 17th. This is titled Prosecuting Trump, a Reply to Josh Marshall. I really recommend this To uh, readers, both for itself as a very good statement, but also because of the links within it to previous writings of Goldsmith's, in which he makes the tentative statement that it's not even clear that Trump has broken any federal laws. Now, this is an amazing thing to say, simply because if you watch the news and follow commentators from across the political spectrum who are not in the Trump tank, You will hear overwhelming assumptions from people all the time about. Trump obviously is a criminal. And then the debate that I've been engaged in now for weeks is what do we do about him being a criminal? Do we prosecute him or not? Does he get away with it? Is it a, a vindication or an attack on the rule of law by doing or not doing that? But Goldsmith points out that from publicly available information, and he concedes that it's possible that Merrick Garland knows things that he doesn't that show that, in fact, Trump is guilty of breaking these laws. So Certain laws, but Goldsmith is not convinced entirely that this is the case. Now, he, with Bob Bauer, wrote a very good book which I think was the occasion of his visit on the podcast, in which he went through this problem and proposed all kinds of new laws that should be passed to make sure that the next time we get a Trump, God forbid, in the White House, that actually a lot more things will be ruled illegal. So if you're really looking to dive into the question of really what are we even talking about here, I really recommend this piece by Jack Goldsmith at Lawfare, Prosecuting Trump, A Reply to Josh Marshall. Thank you,
0: Eric Edelman.
1: Well, I'm a big fan of the late political scientist V.O. Key. Bill Galston will remember him, who uh, reputedly once said that he believed in the sober second thought of the American voter. And so, my highlight of the week was the American voter on Tuesday, who uh, seemed to have rewarded moderation for the most part in both parties, and that for me was a highlight. The low light was the FSB, the Russian successor to the KGB, which after many years of fecklessness in solving high-profile crimes in Russia, like the assassination of Boris Nemtsov or Anna Politkovskaya, the journalist, in 36 hours, amazingly seems to have solved the assassination of Dasha Dugina um, (laughs) with a story that was so preposterous that it uh, seems to have completely fallen apart on first glance. And in fact, they're not really even selling this at home. So that to me just was one more example of how feckless and foolish President Putin's apparatchiks have been. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Uh, We didn't even have a chance to get into it when we were discussing Ukraine, but uh, one of the big stories that has broken over the last couple of weeks is just how poor the intelligence was that the FSB supplied to Putin about Ukraine before the invasion. Yep. Okay. Thank you. Bill Galston. Well, I'm going to do what I rarely do,
3: and that is highlight a point of personal vindication as beg to differ, listeners will know. Uh, It's been my position from the outset that the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade would have a material impact on the midterm elections. And the evidence has been mounting that that is the case. Survey research has indicated that Democrats are giving a much higher priority to this issue than they did before the court. The enthusiasm gap has narrowed significantly, and by 38, the website, came out with a very good before and after study, you know, how special elections were going before the Supreme Court's decision and how they've been going since. And Democrats were underperforming their district's expectations by about two percentage points before the decision was handed down. And in the special election since they've overperformed by nine percentage points. That is a big, big shift. And the special election in New York State, where the Democrat, Mr. Ryan, ran almost entirely on the choice issue, went the Democrats' way, even though the district tilts Republican by a significant margin. So I think that the doubt about the impact of abortion on the midterm elections is being dispelled. And the question now is only how big an impact it will
0: have. Agreed. And uh, just have to add that Democrats have gotten a huge assist from the kinds of radical Republicans who have been saying they're against abortion, no exceptions, not for rape, not for incest, and so forth. You know what the national support for that position is? (laughs) Nine percent. Nine (laughs) percent. I'm surprised it's even that high. But, well, there are a lot uh, all of right. Crazy people. <laughs> there, I guess. <laughs>
4: okay. Thank you. Linda Chavez. I actually have a low light this week that is really somewhat painful for me on a personal basis. It has to do with the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I'm sure Mona. That you like, I was the type of person who, for many, many years, when the newspapers came in in the old days, we used to actually get them at our doorstep and uh, you'd bring it in. The first thing I would do is open the Wall Street Journal and open to the editorial page and be enlightened, be educated, feel that some of my instincts on particular issues were vindicated by what was written on those pages. And I don't feel that way anymore, and this week, my low light of the week was an editorial, uh, an op-ed on the editorial page that was titled, The Trump Warrant Had No Legal Basis, and it was written by David Rifkin Jr. and Lee Casey, both of whom served in previous administrations, the Reagan and the George H.W. Uh, Bush administrations, and I haven't read the piece that Damon referred to yet, and maybe... Mr. Goldsmith makes uh, points that Rifkin and Lee Casey did not make in their piece. Uh, they were speaking specifically of the Presidential Records Act, and they contend that Trump did not violate that act. And just on its face, I thought their argument was ludicrous, that any idea that the Presidential Records Act would Approve of the kind of behavior that Trump engaged in in terms of treating documents which are not his personal property but rather belong to the people of the United States that was just a ludicrous argument. And, you know, what I lament in terms of the Wall Street Journal's editorial page is the way in which on so many issues uh, regarding Trump, while the editorials have sometimes condemned Trump and his personal behavior, that they continue to perpetuate uh, the notion that there was something called a Russia collusion hoax, and that this was a plot that was put together by Hillary Clinton and her supporters meant to unravel the Trump administration. And I just have seen a deterioration in uh, the quality of their arguments and the quality of some of the pieces that they choose to print. And that's my lowlight
0: for the week. Two responses to that. First, of course, the work of one William Galston, which does also yes, appear in the journal editorial page, a... is thank not you, included. Thank you, thank you.
4: <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I should have said that um, at the onset. <laughs>
0: But second, I completely agree. I mean, this has been a source of grief for me as well. Sort of the old Wall Street Journal was so reliable and, and terrific and uh, enlightening, as you say, and they have gradually lowered their standards over the Trump years and become sometimes almost downright conspiratorial in tone but often just you know engaging in orgies of whataboutism i just happened to glance at a piece by another columnist holman jenkins last week and you know he was saying that adam schiff had lied and dissembled just as badly as donald trump ever had i thought what i mean you know that is just You know, I'm not saying that Adam Schiff is a Boy Scout or an angel or whatever, but I mean, the comparison is so over the top and ridiculous, but that's the sort of thing you will find in the journal these days. And no, it's just another source of another example of our national decline. What can I say? And I know some of our listeners are going to say, no, it was just the right. The right has always been like this. And I would just say, no, no, it hasn't. Okay, my highlight is a piece again that harkens back to the discussion about what to do about our Trump problem. It's by Jason Willick in the Washington Post and it's called What Biden Could Gain From Pardoning Trump. And uh, he spins out a thought experiment that, you know, the Department of Justice does indeed bring charges and then Biden elects to pardon Trump. And it's an interesting thought experiment as I say. I have reasons to doubt that it would actually work. One of our readers, Ann Womble, wrote to me this week and said, you know, what about the pardon option? And my reaction was, I don't think Trump would accept a pardon because he knows that an indictment and a trial would be good for him. So I don't know. But as we said earlier, these are very, very difficult matters to think through. And none of us has a crystal ball. And uh, it's worth thinking about all of the different options and Willick presents. One very interesting one. And with that, I want to thank everyone. I want to thank Eric Edelman for joining us. Always a privilege to have you with us. I want to thank our producer, Katie Cooper, and our sound engineer, Joe Armstrong, and of course, our wonderful listeners who are wonderful but aren't doing quite enough in terms of word of mouth to get the word out there about what a great podcast this is and how you can't live without it. So, People write and tell me that, that they listen every week. So if you do, please tell your friends. We will be back next week as every week. Thank you all very much.